What is a patent? Brought to you by Cartmills and Ransford, this is Discover IP, the podcast where we bring you insights into the patent profession so that you can understand if it might be the career path for you. I'm Ben Chapman, a patent attorney at Cartmills and Ransford, and today I'm joined by my colleague, Russell Woolley, a senior associate patent attorney who works in our chemistry and materials group. Together, we'll be getting to grips with what a patent actually is. So, hello, Russell. Welcome to the show. Hi, Ben. So let's dive right in, shall we? Um, What exactly is intellectual property? Listeners may be familiar with a number of of different forms of intellectual property, and and patents is, is one of many. So listeners could be familiar with trademarks, which protect a sign, which indicates the origin of a product. And you might also be familiar with, with copyright, another form of IP, and that protects creative works. What patents do is they protect how, how things work. They protect technical inventions. And I think it's also important to say what a patent isn't. A patent doesn't give you any rights to actually do anything. So if you've invented something, a patent doesn't give you the right to go ahead and and use your invention. But what a patent does do is it gives you the right to stop someone else from doing your invention. Right. So it's a way of stopping other people exploiting the invention that you've made. Yes, exactly. So um, I'll give an example to, to show what that means in practice. So if we imagine that patents existed thousands of years ago, and let's imagine that the very first caveman to invent the wheel got a patent protecting the wheel. And this means that this first caveman inventor can stop anyone else from selling a wheel because it's protected by their patent. But now let's imagine a few years later, another caveman comes along and improves the wheel. They invent a wheel with spokes, which is a lighter, more efficient wheel. And that second caveman gets a patent protecting a spoked wheel. But even though this second caveman has has a patent protecting its spoked wheel, it can't sell that spoked wheel without the permission of the first caveman. And that's because the first caveman's patent protects all wheels, including the wheel with spokes, which was invented by the second caveman a few years later. So the second caveman can't sell a wheel without the permission of the first caveman. And the first caveman can't sell a spoked wheel without the permission of the second caveman. So you can sort of have a patent for a first invention and then you might, a few years later, you or someone else might come up with an improvement to that invention that is itself patentable and that's an improvement, but it's still, I guess, dependent on that first invention. Yes, exactly. If that second invention is completely within the scope of the first invention, so a, a spoked wheel, is it's still a wheel when it comes down to it, um, you still need the permission of the, the holder of the first patent to, to go ahead and, um, and start marketing and selling your, your improved wheel. So how would our caveman get a patent, Russell? What, what are the requirements for a patent? So well, once you have an invention, a technical invention, um, there are a number of requirements that that invention must meet in order to be granted as a patent. 
the invention needs to be novel, and that means the invention hasn't been done before. A further requirement is that the invention needs to show an inventive step, which is another way of saying that the invention wouldn't have been obvious. And then there's a, a further requirement, and that is that the patent needs to teach the world how to repeat the invention. And this is sometimes known as the patent bargain. And so I guess do you want to give us a bit more detail on each of those requirements. So the first one you mentioned there was was novelty, um, which is the requirement that something is new. It's a bit more subtle than that, isn't it? Yes, exactly. So um, novelty essentially is if your invention has been done before, then it can't get a patent for it. But in practice, what this means is if the invention was available to the public before you filed your patent application, then that patent can't be granted. So there's two things here. The key date isn't when you first thought of an invention. It isn't when uh, an invention was first written down in a lab book. The key date for deciding if an invention is novel or not is when a patent application was filed trying to protect that invention. And, and so the important point here is, is you shouldn't wait too long if you think you've invented something. If you wait a couple of years before finally getting around to discussing it with a patent attorney, uh, wait a couple of years before an application is filed, well, in that gap between you coming up with your invention and filing an application, someone else might independently come up with the same invention after you did it. But if they publish it before you filed your patent application, then you can't get a patent for it. Hmm. And there's, um, so that's the first key point is the key date for whether or not something's novel is the date the patent application was filed, not the date you thought of the invention. And the second key point for novelty is an invention being available to the public before that patent application was filed, that covers any way that the public could have gained knowledge of the invention. It doesn't have to be widely known to, you know, to the man on the street. It just has to be possible that someone could have gained the knowledge of your invention without breaking some kind of confidentiality agreement. So if your invention is, is mentioned in one chapter of your PhD thesis, and that PhD thesis was published before you file a patent application, then you can't get a patent. Mm. E even if no one has actually read that thesis, it's been gathering dust in the library, as many PhD theses do, as, as I'm sure mine did. As long as someone could have read it before you filed the patent application, then that means you don't have novelty and, and you can't get a patent. Yeah, we often talk about the library principle, don't we, which is just even if it was available to the public in some way, even if there's no proof that anyone had even, as you say, taken your PhD thesis off the shelf, or even in theory, if a lecture was given to an empty lecture theatre, but people were allowed to come in, then in theory, that destroys the novelty of your invention. Exactly, yes. And um, it's also uh, in any language as well. So it could be uh, in one copy of one book in a, a library in a village in South Korea, could be enough to um, to destroy novelty, meaning you can't get a patent. 
And then once you've got over that hurdle of novelty, so let's say your invention hasn't been made available anywhere um, publicly and you get your patent application on file, what's, what's the next hurdle? Right, so we have a novel invention. The next hurdle is that the invention must show an inventive step, which is an, another way of saying the invention wasn't obvious. But the question is, um, wasn't obvious to who? And so to answer that question, we, we create a, a legal fiction. We uh, hypothesize this imaginary person known as the skilled person. And we decide whether the invention would have been obvious to this imaginary skilled person. And, and that skilled person has some, some special powers. It can go anywhere in the world and read any information available to the public before the patent application was filed. And it can read any language, understand French, German, Korean, English. But the key point is there's one power the skilled person doesn't have, and that's the power of invention. So the skilled person can follow instructions, it can do complex tasks if it's prompted to do so, but the skilled person is missing any inventive spark, any, any lateral thinking. It's in practice quite a subtle question often, isn't it, Russell? The question of whether or not something would have been obvious. You might find that, say, your invention is to bring together two different things that were already known before, but when you put them together, they have some unexpected and interesting effect. And then you have to have a question of, well, was it obvious to bring those two things together? And that's often one of the questions that comes up with inventive step, isn't it? Yes, I think that that word unexpected, which you shared there, is, is the really important one when deciding whether or not um, something would have been obvious. Inventions generally aim to improve something. But if, if you've improved something in an entirely expected way, then that may well be deemed obvious and you can't get a patent for it. And... I'll go back to the, the wheel example we thought of before as a, to illustrate this. So we had a, a wheel with spokes. And let's imagine that that first wheel with spokes had, had wooden spokes. And, and let's also imagine that the skilled person is aware that um, steel is another material and that steel beams are, are stronger than wooden beams. And we could imagine a, an invention would be to take a wheel with wooden spokes and to make those spokes out of steel. And, and that has improved the wheel. It, it's stronger than it was before because it now has steel spokes. But that improvement was expected. The skilled person knows that steel is stronger than wood and that wheels can have spokes. So it's obvious that replacing the wooden spokes with steel strokes, spokes would provide a stronger wheel. So that example is something that might be deemed obvious or, or not to have an inventive step. And to, to come up with some example the other way, which, which might be obvious, what if our invention was actually to put a, a steel rim on our wooden wheel? And what if that provided the improvement of lowering friction and improving fuel consumption? Well, if all the skilled person knew that was that steel was stronger than wood, they wouldn't have expected that putting a steel rim on a wooden wheel 
might improve fuel consumption. So that that sort of thing, uh, this unexpected improvement could lead you to having an inventive step. Mm. It's the sort of thing where, as a patent attorney, you're always telling people to be on the lookout, aren't you? Um, what, what surprised you when you've been developing a new technology or a new product? And those surprising things are often where the inventions are. Yes, exactly. And I think it's also worth noting that that improvement doesn't have to be a particularly big improvement. Um, incremental improvements, if, if they weren't expected, can certainly be um, be patentable. Mm. And so that's novelty and inventive steps. So if something's new and it's not obvious, um, you mentioned before uh, sufficiency and the patent bargain. Do you want to talk us through that? Yes. So the patent bargain. I suppose we can we can take a step back and, and think that a patent is actually a, it's a very powerful thing. It is a right given to the holder to stop anyone else using that invention for, for 20 years, which is the normal term of a patent. But in return, and this is where the, the phrase patent bargain comes in, in return for giving you this limited, this 20-year monopoly, once that patent has expired, the bargain is that the rest of the world must then be able to use the invention for free once that patent has expired. And so to meet your, your side of the bargain as the patent holder, you need to provide enough information in your patent so that that invention can then be repeated based on the teaching of the patent. And this means that when the patent has expired, you've contributed to um, you know, to the state of the arts because the world can then use your invention for free. Yeah, and um, patents do become this great trove of scientific and technical information over the years, don't they? I know that it's certainly something I wasn't particularly aware of uh, while I was studying is the sheer amount of technical information that you can find in patent specifications. Yes, yeah, so that, that's exactly right. And I also, when I was doing my PhD, I wasn't really aware of patents. I, I cited one patent in my thesis. I read it and, and couldn't make head or tail of it, really. Um, and I didn't go around looking for more information in patents. But they are they're freely available. There's a, a number of, of public databases. Um, Google Patents is a, a really easy way to get started, which uh, if you just Google Google Patents, you, you'll get straight to Google Patents, and you can then just start searching for some keywords. Um, as you say, there's a there have been many, many, many years of patents adding these inventions to um you know, to the to the state of the art. And when you get there, Russell, uh, I mean, what what do those patents look like once you've found one that might have piqued your interest? Before I get onto that, one other thing I wanted to mention actually is, what if you don't want to tell the world about your invention? If you don't want the world to be able to use your invention after you have a patent, then another thing you can do is to keep your invention as a trade secret, which is a, another form of intellectual property. And that could be more valuable than a patent. If, if you think no one can reverse engineer your invention, it might be by keeping it a secret, you could get more protection than the 20-year term of the patent. But clearly, if you take that route, then there's a risk that if someone does reverse engineer your invention and you've kept it secret the whole time, then they can use it for free and, and you would have been able to stop them by having a patent. But you've, you've you've given up that chance by keeping it a secret. I guess the famous example here is the recipe for Coca-Cola. If they'd put that out there or tried to patent it 
uh, Coca-Cola has been around for a lot longer than 20 years and other people would be using that recipe by now. Exactly. So that, that that's a trade secret, which is um, supposedly protecting Coca-Cola, though um, other other carbonated beverages are available. <laughs> anyway, um, on to your, your question, which was, how do we actually read a patent? Um, and patents are written in, in quite a, a formulaic way. And they're broken down into a number of different sections. There'll be a, a front page with some formal information. Who owns the patent? Who were the inventors? There'll be lots of official numbers and, and dates. And, and the front page should also make it clear if you're reading a patent application or a granted patent. And, and we will we'll come to the difference between those two a bit later. So once you're, you're past the formal stuff on the front page, there should then be a description. And this should explain the background to the invention, the state of the art before the invention, what the invention aims to achieve. And it should also explain how the invention achieves what it aims to achieve. And this takes us back to the patent bargain, the patent needs to tell the world how to do the invention. So it will need to contain a, a fairly detailed description of, of what exactly needs to be done. Um, there should then be some worked examples. And this is a, a bit like the experimental section of a journal article. And, and together, the description and examples are there to show the world that something you've improved something by virtue of your invention and that can be repeated by you following the instructions in the description and following the examples and this means you can meet the the patent bargain and normally after the examples we have what are called the claims and the claims are the most important part from a in, in a patent from a legal perspective they're called claims because a patent claims protection for anything which is within the scope of what's written in the claims. And so the claims will be a, a series of, of written statements which which define the invention. It's um, one of the most curious parts of patents, I think, is when you get to those claims and read them because they're trying to define some technical concept normally, but in written words and uh, they, they can be quite difficult to read for the uninitiated can't they yes exactly and i think that that's why that that one patent i read which i cited in my thesis i didn't i couldn't make sense of it because i came to these claims and was was just confused to be honest um but getting the claims right is is very important for for a few reasons um the first is that the, the patent requirements, which we discussed before, so novelty, inventive step, and the patent bargain, they are assessed based on the claims. So what's written in the claims is what has to be novel. What's written in the claims is what has to be inventive. And what's written in the claims is what, the, is what you need to be able to repeat for the, um, the patent bargain to be met. And a, a further reason why the claims are important is 
as I said, the patent claims protection for anything that falls within the scope of the claims. So you can think of those written statements listing the, the features of the invention. Think of those as an umbrella covering the invention. And if anyone does something under that umbrella, repeating each of the features in the claims, then they are infringing your patent. So you'd imagine to make that patent as valuable as possible, you want that umbrella to be as broad as possible. So to do that, the claims should list what is essential for making the invention work and nothing else. Because if, if the claims include something that isn't essential for making the invention work, someone could, could do your invention without doing that, that non-essential thing that was written in your claims. And, and if they do that, they've avoided infringing your patent because they're no longer falling within the scope of the claims. I suppose taking your example of a spoked wheel, uh, you'd want to define that the wheel has spokes, but not necessarily the number of spokes. Yes, exactly. So if you if you had a claim, say, to a wheel with six spokes, which may well at the time have been novel, inventive, and meeting the patent bargain, but if then you know, the, the caveman next door saw your patent to a wheel with six spokes and then made a wheel with four spokes, that wouldn't be infringing that, that claim to a to a, a wheel with six spokes because because it doesn't have six spokes. It's only got four. And and so that caveman next door could, could go away and, and sell their four-spoked wheel. And really the mistake that would have been made by the 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 caveman with the claim to a patent with six spoke to a wheel with six spokes is that the number of spokes wasn't essential. Having spokes was essential but it would have worked with three, four, five, six, seven spokes. So a better claim that would have protected the wheel with spokes would have been merely a wheel having spokes mm. as instead of um, a specific number of spokes. And so you've mentioned, Russell, patents and patent applications. Um, do you want to talk us through the difference between those two and how you get from one to the other? Sure. So the key point is that a patent isn't granted automatically. To get a patent, you need to file a patent application at a patent office. And, and that application is then examined. An examiner will check if, if the claims of that application meet those requirements of novelty, inventive step, and the patent bargain. And it's normal to need to limit the claims to make them narrower to, to satisfy the examiner that, um, that those requirements are met. And only once the examiner is, is, is happy that you have a set of claims which meet those requirements, then your patent application will then be granted as a patent. So there, there are two different things, patent application, which is then granted as a patent. And it's important to note as well, isn't it, I suppose, that... Um there are different patent offices for different parts of the world, different countries and different regions who have the powers to grant patents in particular countries or territories. Yes, exactly. So 
that that powerful patent right, that that monopoly is granted by a state. So if you want a patent in America, you file a patent application at the American Patent Office. If you want a patent in China, you file at the Chinese Patent Office and, and so on. A patent is, is limited to a, to a territory. It's, it's worth mentioning also that there is a, a central European Patent Office, which allows you to get the same patents across Europe, including the UK. And unfortunately, this European Patent Office has nothing to do with the European Union. So Brexit has had no effect whatsoever on the use of European patents um, providing patent protection in the UK. That's right. And I suppose in the UK, we're in a situation that not all countries are in, where we have the UK Patent Office, where you can file a patent application directly to, if you want a patent that will be granted just in the UK, or you can file your patent application at the European Patent Office that turns into a European patent that will give you a bundle of rights covering lots of different countries, including the UK afterwards. So there's two different routes to go from patent application to granted patent in the UK. Yes, exactly. So, Russell, we've gone, we've filed our patent application, we have filed it at a patent office, it's been examined, we've convinced the examiner that it's novel, it's inventive, it uh, meets the patent bargain, and they've granted our patent. Uh, what, what happens then? Well, it's, it's time now to make some money off your patent. So you've, you've been through all the, all, the, all the trouble of getting it. So I suppose let, let's try to make some money out of it. So you, you can use that, that patent right to, to keep everyone else off the market. So people have to buy from you if they want to, um, to use your invention, because you could stop them using that patent right. And another thing you can do to make some money would be to license the patent. So let's imagine you're a, a small company that, that doesn't have enough manufacturing capacity to supply the market with enough of your invention. You could work with a larger company that does. You, that larger company might be willing to pay you a, a royalty for the right to sell your invention. And patents are also, you know, they're items of, of property, intellectual property. They can be bought and sold. They can be mortgaged. They are assets. They're ways of showing value. So even if you're not actively working the invention covered by the patent, having a large portfolio of patents is a way of showing the value of, of, of your business. And I've, I've heard it said before from, from friends of mine in, in management consultancy, that having a successful business doesn't need any original ideas. You just need to do someone else's idea slightly better than they're doing it. But having a patent means that someone can't do that to you. It means that they can't, they can't just reverse engineer what you've been doing and, and do it slightly better. Well, I think that's a brilliant summary, brilliant potted introduction to patents russell thank you so much for joining us today um before you go uh, i've got one final question that i ask all of our guests and for you what's your favorite part of your job as a patent attorney i think it's quite a broad favorite part it, i just find the job is really 
interesting and challenging in in so many different ways and that means it never gets boring it always it keeps me engaged so in any one day i might work on many different cases i might work on a new polymer for a contact lens a new oxide to put in a lithium-ion battery even a, a new way of making chocolate in any one day i could work on a variety of cases and in each of these, you really need to get into the detail of, of how these things work. And I find that really interesting. You'll find you'll be right on the cutting edge of, of new advances in technical fields, often many years before they're commercialized. And I find that absolutely fascinating. It's, it's just, there's so much variety. You have to get into the, the detail of the science. It means the job just doesn't get boring. Hmm. Well said. Well, thanks again, Russell. Um, And thank you for listening to Discover IP. We hope you'll join us again soon for more insights into the job of a patent attorney. So do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to find out more about a career in IP or want to get in touch with us, then you can contact us at recruitment at cartmills.com. Recruitment.